Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art, where we bring you a new story about your world in every episode. Today's guest is Joanna Cifredo, an activist who has been fighting for transgender rights for nearly a decade. She will share how a single act of discrimination turned her into an overnight sensation in Puerto Rico and how she plans to launch her own trans-led organization on the island. Thank you for following the Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. There has been an exodus from Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. More than 123,000 residents have permanently relocated to the U.S. mainland, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Among the most marginalized on the island who are too poor to leave, are LGBTQ people. Many are often cast away from families, especially transgender and gender nonconforming people. They experience horrible violence rooted in religious fundamentalism that incites the persecution and demonization of queer people. While Puerto Rico is often seen as a popular gay destination in the circuit, Once you leave the comfort of the big cities, the LGBTQ community goes back to square one, a place where conversion therapy is still legal and most laws protecting the rights of LGBTQ citizens are symbolic since law enforcement provides no consequences to institutions who choose not to enforce them. Our guest today, Joanna Cifredo, left the island years before Hurricane Maria to make something of herself. But when her island was hit by the deadliest hurricane in its modern-day history, she felt the need to go back. So Joanna packed up her bags, took her street smarts and newly acquired political savvy with her back to the island. Her advocacy for transgender folks on the island has since been felt through her keen sense of policy, communications, and media skills that she picked up while working in the offices of some of the most powerful gay organizations while living in D.C. Now more than ever, advocates like Joanna are needed. Since 2013, more than 200 transgender or gender nonconforming people have been killed across the United States. Nine in ten of those victims were transgender women, and most of them were black and brown. Puerto Rico has disproportionately seen greater numbers of victims for an island of three million people. Joanna hopes to change that narrative by bringing dignity to everyone who chooses to live their lives authentically and remain on the island to live out and proud. I want to welcome to the show an amazing activist from Puerto Rico who I met a decade ago when I first arrived in Washington, D.C. This fierce Latina who never forgot her roots has given her life to the cause, and I'm proud to have her on my show today. Welcome, Joanna. Hey, Jesse. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, before we get started, I need to ask, are you and your family doing okay after... Hurricane Fiona. We're doing good. We're doing good. We lost power for about 
two weeks, uh, which was a little rough, but all things considered were, were well, you know, there, there was many, many people in Puerto Rico who lost the, everything um, due to mudslides and flooding. And still there are uh, thousands of people across the island who still uh, don't have electricity, you know, three weeks out. And we're praying for them still and hoping that um, action and FEMA and our federal government really steps up to the plate this time in a more uh, meaningful way. I want our listeners to know about you because I think of you in the world of you, you have an interesting story, but can you tell us a little bit about your journey? You, you're from Puerto Rico, but you have a special family in DC. Uh, tell us yep. about how you came of age in DC. Yeah, so I, I left Puerto Rico when I was in ninth grade and I uh, finished uh, my schooling in Central Florida and Orlando. And early in my 20s, when I was uh, 23, I relo- I'm 35 now. I relocated to Washington, D.C. after reading an article that Washington was one of the cities with the, with the most progressive LGBTQ laws in the country. And so I moved to D.C. with $300 and a job that was basically an internship. It was a two-month uh, gig because the grant was running out. Uh, and so they just needed someone to kind of like you know, complete the, the project and fill out some, you know, reports. And I said, I'll take it because it gives me, you know, it, it gave me a gig while I landed there at the DC Center, um, which was a LGBTQ or, or is a LGBTQ organization based in DC. And so I arrived to DC in the middle of winter. It was super cold. I was super optimistic. Uh, and During that time, I was in D.C. for about seven years. I, I had the opportunity to flourish. I lived in a city that really embraced uh, LGBTQ people, especially trans people. Uh, tr being trans in D.C. is a protected class. There's a whole office uh, dedicated to human rights and ensuring that You know, companies and organizations are doing right by LGBTQ people. Uh, the, the laws uh, in the state uh, require health insurance companies, both public and private, to cover gender affirming care. And having access to that and a stable living situation, I was able to get my hands on a rent control apartment, which means they couldn't raise my rent every year. Uh, that combination of Uh, community, because DC has a very vibrant, uh, amazing LGBTQ community, having access to community, um, healthcare, stable housing, and laws that supported me were really the, you know, the, the perfect storm that allowed my, uh, my story to be possible, and allowed me to flourish. I was so happy when I when I recently saw you, because I, I shared with you how I remember you at that center when you were doing your internship and you were just like this uh, young person full of life. And I was thinking, this person's just going to be at the club because I didn't think you were going to be focused by any means, but you have flourished into this amazing activist. You did it in DC and you're still at it in Puerto Rico. I just, I just, I just, 
I'm just so amazed of what what how things have turned out for you. Uh, you made a name your, for yourself in DC. What made you move back to Puerto Rico? It was really Hurricane Maria. I, I left DC um, towards the end of 2017. I, I was working in policy. I, I had the, while I was in DC, I had the amazing opportunity to work at the uh, National Center for Transgender Equality as a policy analyst. Great organization. And in that position, I had the, the honor and the privilege of working under the direction of, of Mara Kiesling, uh, who is a huge uh, trans historical figure and also under uh, Harper Jean Tobin, who was the policy director at the time. And I, I, I was like a sponge. I had the opportunity to learn and to, and, and to work with some amazing people, um, uh, civil rights leaders. I got the opportunity to, to go to the White House uh, on a weekly basis and work with uh, Rafi Friedman Gerspin, who is also a living, breathing historical figure of the trans community. Trans uh, Amazing. Yes. Yeah. And I, I got to um, uh, meet with secretaries of different federal agencies and work on policy. And then Trump got elected and I was like, I don't want to work policy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for so many in the, mo- in the social justice movement to be able to function under that administration. Yes, and, and, and during that time, a huge switch happened with funding because while Obama was president, much of the funding was in policy um, because we knew we had someone at the top who was sympathetic to our causes. And so we were trying, we were working with all the different federal agencies to really update you know, policies and make sure that they were equitable to LGBTQ people and racial minorities. Um, but then when Trump got elected, a lot of the funding switched to communications, to defending all of the progress we had made under the Obama administration. And I knew I wanted a, a more of a role in helping shape the public discourse around all these policy uh, wins that we had gained during the Obama administration. And so I started looking for other opportunities outside of DC. Um, I looked at New York because also just the, the overall vibe in DC changed under the yeah. Trump administration. And so I got an opportunity to work uh, for an educational organization, GLSEN, that supports LGBTQ students as their media relations manager. But right as I started that position, um, Hurricane Maria happened and I felt the calling to move back to Puerto Rico, but I had just moved to New York. Um, so it was just, a, a, I felt very alone, um, but I also felt more tied because in, in New York there are more Puerto Ricans, I felt more tied to a, a nation. Yes. Um, and I, I rem- and I, I felt that calling that my people need me. And so a year after that, I decided I was going to move back to Puerto Rico. I wrote a one-woman show because I, I also do stand-up comedy. So I, I wrote a that. one-woman show and started called Keeping It Boricua so I could save up money and move back. And I toured it. My first show was in D.C. It was a sold-out crowd. 
Um, and then I came to Puerto Rico with my ex-boyfriend and we ended up falling in love. We bought a house and now I'm a Bayamon housewife in my hometown. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're able to just like pick up and move and you find happiness or success wherever you go. I always find the queer people wherever I live. I always look for trans people. And so I, I moved in the summer of 2019 and two, two weeks after I arrived, all the summer protests to, to Ricky Renuncia to oust the then governor started and every, all my friends in the States were like, Joanna, you brought the revolution to Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, once you arrived in Puerto Rico, you became a community organizer. You, uh, what spurred you to take on that role uh, once you got there? Well, when I arrived to Puerto Rico, so after the summer protests of 2019, there was a lot of, okay, after Ricky, what? Like, now what? Now what? And so I, would, I was attending a, little, a lot of different activist groups and protests and stuff, trying to find my place. Um, and then in the summer of 2020, I went to go here in Puerto Rico, you need an actual voter ID to vote which means it's a specific ID that you go to the, um, uh, the voter registration office. And I had trouble getting mine in my legal name because for people who are born in Puerto Rico, they go based off of uh, what appears in El Registro Demográfico, the, the um, like social registry, yes. and it's tied to your birth certificate. Now, when I changed my name in DC, at that time, you couldn't change your birth certificate here in Puerto Rico. So I proceeded with changing my social, my license, and my passport. So when I arrived to the office, I presented my passport because for people who are born outside of Puerto Rico, they'll accept your passport or your birth certificate. But for people born in Puerto Rico, they go based off of the... Um, the registry. And so when I explained to the woman that I don't have a birth certificate in my legal name, uh, that's when a lot of discriminatory uh, and problematic language started to happen. And so I proceeded to go to the state office, which it was also a headache. Um, at the end of the day, I did, I was able to achieve getting my voter registration ID card in my legal name because I knew, uh, and this is the importance of, of knowing your rights, that in order to vote, you only have to prove four things, that you're over the age of 18, your identity, your citizenship, and your residency. And so when I provided my passport and I provided the bill of my, you know, my, my phone bill, that was suffice. I, I, I met all the requirements that they should have just given it to me then. So anyways, I proceeded to post on Instagram what a long and tedious ordeal it was, not thinking that it, the post would go viral. And, and it, overnight, I was the talk of the island. I love it. Uh, <laughs> caught me off guard because... Uh, being misgendered and not getting, you know, uh, having, having, a, you know, government officials deny 
you know, access to, to, to you know, power. yeah, like that's the norm in my community. That's not the exception. And so I was surprised that people were so shocked, especially that given all the things that were happening on the island at that time, uh, one of the news uh, channels contacted my partner wanting to interview us. And because I felt like I had a social responsibility, I um, invited them to the house and they interviewed us. Uh, and then the community wanted to host a protest. And I said, well, if we're gonna ask people to come protest during a pandemic, have people bring their documentation and let's make a voter registration event. I love that. And so we did a huge voter registration event at the state board of elections with a protest. Uh, and after that, we launched a voter registration, a get out the vote campaign. We did a social media challenge called hashtag Saque La Mia, where you take a picture of your, with your a selfie with your voter registration card and you nominate three friends to go get theirs. And we recorded a PSA uh, using an all trans and non-binary cast that was filmed in my house in one day with zero resources, of course, uh, zero funds. Yeah. And we did a whole voter registration campaign. I organized various meetings with um, aspiring politicians and our community. I drafted up a policy agenda that was based off of the work I had done while I was at um, NCTE. And that's when I really started doing policy work because while I was in DC, I don't have any formal like um, institutional education. Uh, I'm, I'm in the process of, requiring, uh, of acquiring that now. Um, but most of my experience has been as a young person just trying to advocate for their needs. You learned and, on the job. You learned on the job. Exactly. And, and I so how, I gotta say, I gotta love how you took a negative situation that happened to you and you turned it around and made it into a positive. Not nothing that benefits you, but benefits the community. Well, it benefits you because it helps your community uh, achieve. So I just love how you took that and made it into a positive for so many people. And you yeah. put a spotlight on discrimination and something that's very anti-democratic and you flipped it and you made it so more people could have access to the vote. Yeah, and so I, I just used the training I got while I was in DC. You know, I in DC, that's when I started doing interviews. That's when I started doing policy work. And so I just brought that knowledge back, back to Puerto Rico and said, you know, I know how to do policy work. I know how, you know, I know how politics works. You know, I know how media works. I know how to draft talking points. I, you know, I know how to, you know, give media training and inspire young people so that they can tell their stories so that they could also uh, contextualize their experiences using data um, and, and use that to actually push for positive change in their communities. And that's what I've been doing since moving back. Puerto Rico is such an amazing place. I've been there twice. It's got a beautiful LGBTQ scene. I mean, talk about a wonderful place to go party and, and celebrate pride, but it's also so dangerous, especially for transgender folks. Why is it? Well, in Puerto Rico, we're, what we're experiencing is the breakdown of civil society here. 
Um, we've been in a huge economic slump for over a decade. Um, over the last 10 to 20 years, we've lost a about a million people, uh, you know, in, in terms of outward migration. Yeah. Um, we have a fiscal control board. We declared uh, bankruptcy in 2016. And the United States response was to implement a fiscal control board to oversee the island's finances because the local island government is so irresponsible and corrupt that they can't be trusted to manage their own finances. Uh, and because of that um, uh, control board, they have closed over 500 schools across the island, some due to structural issues, many of them due to depopulation, um, and they've been cutting many services, um, which has exacerbated the outward migration. And as people leave the island, all the issues that we have, all the social issues um, and, and economic and, and issues that we experience here become exacerbated. Uh, add that to, we are also, ex we're also very vulnerable to the climate crisis. Um, you know, people who left in Maria, they're, they're basically climate refugees. Exactly. Uh, we, we have communities, some of the most vulnerable communities in Puerto Rico um, to climate, uh, to the climate crisis, to climate change, are communities that are very impoverished, the uh, average yearly salary for a household here in Puerto Rico is about 20000 So Puerto Ricans are very, very vulnerable. And so we've seen a huge increase in crime. We've seen a huge increase in domestic violence and gender-based violence. And uh, add that to the fact that there is a national campaign against trans people on behalf of conservative politicians, which has also happened here. We have a far right uh, uh, political party who has made it their mission to really go after the trans community. You add all these things, trans people and specifically trans women experience the brunt or a disproportionate level of that violence. And so just last year, um, in January of last year, the governor declared a state of emergency because of gender-based violence. In May, USA Today um, reported that based off of FBI statistics, Puerto Rico was the jurisdiction with the highest rate of transgender murders because we had also experienced a series of uh, anti-trans attacks. And that has continued to this year. We've uh, uh, this year, we haven't lost any trans members, but we have lost a few gay men. When you're working to bring awareness to the fact that so many people of the LGBTQ community are being attacked and killed, how do you get your message across? What has been your most effective message? So I, this is where my, my communications experience has really come in handy. So here in Puerto Rico, when I arrived, I've never been a girl. I, I've always, my comfort has always been behind the scenes. Yes. Uh, and in the States, it was easier to do that because in the United States, there's a much more broad range of trans representation. 
There's trans celebrities, there's trans actors, there's trans politicians, there's trans activists. Uh, there's many different kinds of trans people. Whereas here in Puerto Rico, we don't have that level of representation. So when I first arrived, I was, I quickly became the only reference that many people had of a trans person and specifically a trans woman. And now, now I'm, I'm, I'm happy that like, uh, I don't know if you know Villano Antillano, who's a trans uh, rapper. She's from my hometown. Okay. Um, and she just recently did her transition just a little over a year ago. Um, but when I first got here, many there's so many trans babies who had yet to step into their authenticity. Uh, most of the trans people tend to leave the island. So there's um, trans elders. There's quite a few trans elders that are 55 up or 50 up. Um, and then there's the trans babies who in many cases are just now starting their transitions. They're mostly college age. But most of the, uh, the girls around my age, they, they leave and go to the States. And so I realized I, I quickly became a reference for a lot of people. And I, I, I took that as a responsibility. You know, I really took that as a responsibility because I understand that because, you know, trans people were judged as a collective. We're not judged as individuals. Exactly. And so I, you know, I know how respectability politics works. So I always, you know, try to represent the community as best as possible when I would give um, testimony at the House, uh, the Puerto Rican House or the Puerto Rican Senate. And, um, and when I would appear on media outlets and because I have a policy background, I was able to talk about issues facing trans people in a much more in-depth way than just any, you know, any average trans person. Uh, and so a lot of reporters and journalists, and because I would go to a lot of protests, uh, they would either cover my speeches or interview me. Um, and I, I would say I, I always get interviewed to talk about our mortality. Like I always get interviewed to talk about our deaths. But um, it's the reality is that, you know, we are facing a lot of discrimination and violence here in Puerto Rico. The community, Puerto Rico as a whole, Puerto Ricans as a whole, uh, are, are very much in survival mode and dealing with a lot of social uh, issues. Um, and all of those issues are just exacerbated when we talk about the trans community because we are marginalized even within a marginalized community. Yeah. Does it ever get tiring of talking about the deaths? Like they don't want to ever focus on other things, but the rate of murder within your community. It's, it's, um, it's hard. It, it is hard. I'm not going to lie. I've, at times, my voice will shake. Uh, I will get emotional. Um, sometimes I forget my Spanish. Yeah. Uh, but I do it anyways, because I also recognize that I have a responsibility because I am aware that my story is only possible because there were generations of, you know, LGBTQ people who fought 
and in many cases gave their lives to create the social and political conditions where my story could even be a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> and my life could, could even be a possibility. You know, my husband and I were married, you know, and it's only in this point in time and in this plate, this corner of the earth where our love story is even a possibility. Yeah. And it's those activists. And so, you know, I grew up hearing this statistic that, you know, the average life expectancy for a trans woman in America Latina is 35 years of age. Yeah. 35 now. And so I am aware that, you know, I, I'm, a, a, you know, that one day I'm going to die. I hope it to be many years from now, but I, I, you know, I operate with my mortality, you know, kind of like in the back of my head. Um, and so I don't know how long I'll be on this earth, but what has given my life meaning and what has given uh, all the experiences and stuff that I've been through, because I don't tend to talk about my personal story and the things I've been through to a whole lot of people or at least not with media outlets I you know I, because it's, I, it's I, I'm glad that you don't because it's triggering and it's something that's you know affects your mental health you either be talking about the situations that are going on in your community as a whole and not focus so much on yourself yeah and whenever I do media outlet like I do interviews I'm and they try to focus on my personal experiences I always say well I'm not here to talk about that I'm here to talk about the needs of my community as a way of protecting myself. Um, but what has given those experiences and the, the things I've lived through, what has given that meaning is working towards the world where all young people, all people uh, have the resources um, and support so that they could spread their wings and fly and flourish and become their greatest manifestation of who they are. And DC gave that to me. DC gave me the resources and the support so that I could become the greatest manifestation of myself. And what I have just done is I, I returned back home so that I could give that person to my family, to my community, and to my country. You're paying it forward. I love that. Um, you, last this past summer, that gender-based protection order that was um, announced by Governor Pedro Pierluisi, um, it expired this past summer in the end of June. Did any of those efforts succeed to protect women and trans women? It's hard. I, I don't... None of the educational uh, programs, sexual awareness campaigns, sexual uh, assault awareness campaigns, were they even visible on the island? I, do, I don't believe so. I don't believe they were visible. I think what we need, we need comfort, like real big change here in Puerto Rico. Um, I would like to see uh, LGBTQ people declared a protected class. I've been long fighting for 
uh, a Senate bill that would seek to establish a bill of rights for LGBTQ people, uh, which is essentially, it's almost like the Equality Act on the local level. Yes. Uh, just last year, in September, I, in order to bring visibility to the epidemic of anti-trans violence and to push for the urgent need to pass the bill, I walked uh, across the island. I walked 120 miles. You walked the whole island? 120 miles from the southwest town of San Germán to the footsteps of the capital over a week. Wow. Over the course of a week. How was that experience like? Were you did you have followers? Yes, I did. I walked alongside one of my trans sisters, Eleven Jolie. Um, and then I had and then several other friends uh, accompanied us on different segments of the walk. And we started, I started in the town of San Germán because that's the town where uh, our trans sister Michelle Ramos Vargas was murdered. And her case really resonated with me because me and her were the same age at that time. And so I I knew that the one year anniversary of her death was coming up. And so I really wanted to do something big that would, you know, draw specifically attention from the U.S. like, like the national LGBTQ organizations and the diaspora groups to really put pressure on the legislature and the administration to, to push this project forward and to really commit, commit themselves in a meaningful way to supporting uh, trans and LGBTQ people. Uh, so we started in that town with a vigil. We held four other vigils in different towns where trans people had been murdered along the way. Uh, we also held two college rallies, three if you if you include mine, which I, I did before I started the walk, uh, to talk about the, the Senate bill. And we uh, completed the walk on the 30th of September, which was the one year anniversary of Michelle Ramos's murder uh, with a big rally at the Capitol. Um, we had a police escort. The Senator, uh, um, Anaidma Rivera-Lacen, who's the author of the bill, who is also an LGBTQ historical figure in her own right. She's the first uh, Black out lesbian uh, to serve in the Senate. She authored the bill. She was the one who welcomed me with a big embrace and I felt like I became mush on her shoulders. I just felt crying. Um, And it really was, I think the last couple hundred feet walking up towards the Capitol where me and Eleven actually started breaking down in tears and the and the weight of what we had just accomplished really fell over us um and and the magnitude of what we had uh, accomplished um really came to to the forefront because up until then our focus was just trying to get to the next town um on time because we set up all these little events along the way. And so we were like, okay, you know, we were just so preoccupied on the task at hand that we, it, it was hard to think about the more greater meaning behind what we were doing. Um, were the little towns welcoming or were, did you see a lot of protests? No, no, it, they were all, uh, it was all welcoming. 
we actually, um, on, on several parts of the walk, we had people, um, someone gave us a donation, someone brought us water, uh, we passed a mechanic, and they're like, you're the girl on TV. <laughs> <laughs> And so we, ha we had uh, people give us water and uh, honk and support because I also carried a sign during the whole walk that said protect trans youth. Um, and so the, the response was overwhelmingly positive. There was uh, two occasions where we almost got run off the road and it seemed that it was on purpose. Um, but for the most part, the, the response by most people was really overwhelmingly positive and supportive. Um, but yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was a very intense seven days. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, what happens if something happens to us? Because the reality is that we were telling people where we were going to be at and at what time we were going to be there. And I am one of the most visible faces in this movement. And it's, we're literally walking in the jurisdiction with the highest rate of trans murders. And so we had that very present in our, in our minds. And, and we were joking that about was it. with you at all times. You had to, you were always in that space that this could be my last day. Yeah. And uh, we, we would try to make light of it. You know, so that it, it, you know, it wouldn't, the, so that fear wouldn't paralyze us. So we would joke, we would say, well, if we, if someone kills us, who's going to play us in the movie? And so <laughs> I said, I called dibs on Carmen Carrera. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> right, Joanna. You've done so much for your community. What are the best ways? the associations out there can help trans women in Puerto Rico? Because you have this statistic, statistic that you shared at one of the conferences I attended where you spoke so eloquently about how less than a dollar goes to LGBT uh, trans women of color. I don't know about that. Um, what I, I often say is that most of the money goes to organizations that are not trans-led. And oftentimes what I'll say is that the value of the life, of the, the value of trans woman, the, the, the value of the life of a trans woman to our movement is the equivalent to a pack of condoms and a $10 gift certificate. Wow. That's, that's, what we're worth to this movement. And that oftentimes when, you know, these organizations that are run by um, what Valerie Spencer calls the homosexual elites, yeah. uh, who get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and to, to, service the LGB, to service the trans community. And let's be real, when they use statistics to fundraise, uh, they're talking about trans and non-binary people of color, black and brown uh, trans people. They're talking about our plight and rarely does that money ever actually get to us. So they're making money off of the pain and tears and struggle of the people of color 
trans non-binary to fund causes. Yeah, and that money oftentimes, again, it goes to paying salaries, it goes to administrative costs, it goes to paying for going to conferences and ongoing trainings, but rarely is it actually invested in act uplifting actual trans people out of poverty. Well, people really need to do their research to see where money goes to, what organizations are being helped. It helps to start doing your research for those people who want to donate to LGBT organizations. Where is this money going to? And if maybe it makes a, a wiser choice to give to a local community rather than a national organization. Are there some organizations you recommend that we um, donate to in Puerto Rico? Yeah, so right now I'm, yeah, right now, so I'm in the process of uh, launching our organization, Cedicible PR, uh, but uh, Waves Ahead is actually serving as our fiscal sponsor at the moment. Waves Ahead uh, is an amazing organization. They are, they are. And they're one of the few organizations that actually has been supportive of our work during these few years. Um, and who have actually not just uh, been supportive of actually like given resources and, and help mentor because that's also, I, I have, while I have a lot of policy and communications experience, I don't have a lot of experience running an organization, you know, and all that that entails. And, you know, it, it really takes, you know, very strong leadership to say, you know what, we're going to support emerging leaders and not just, you know, because oftentimes what happens is you'll have amazing trans people working at these organizations, but the cisgender leadership uh, stifles them. How can we follow you? Do you have a social media account that we could start looking at what your day-to-day uh, actions will be in the coming years? Yes, you Follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on um, uh, what's that other one that's like Facebook from the, the networking one? LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn, LinkedIn. <laughs> but I'm oh. on all the social medias as Joanna Cifredo, and that's spelled J-O-A-N-N-A, last name Cifredo, C-I-F-R-E-D-O. Uh, if you'd like to make a donation, you could go to wavesahead.org and make a donation and just, you know, indicate that it's either for Joanna or Sevisible, uh, which is the name of our organization. It's spelled S-E-B-I-S-I-B-L-E. Basically in English, it's be visible. Yes. And you can just put be, be visible. They'll know what it's. They'll know where it goes. Joanna, I want to thank you so much for the work that you've done and to, that you continue to do and to inspire all these people to be, to get up and go march on the streets, march across an island to get the point across. It's so beautiful that someone who had to move away from the island to go find yourself came back and is willing to do so much uh, good to try to uh, help others that are marginalized. Thank you.